Thank you. Thank you, choir. Let's give a hand clap to the Lord. Yes. It was the summer after my first year in college, my freshman year at Olivet Nazarene University, and I had just completed classes for that second semester, and I was on my way home in need of a summer job. I had a friend tell me that they had gotten in to be a substitute teacher, and apparently that the bar for uh, getting a, a certificate to be a substitute teacher was lowered in that particular time. I don't know if it's still that way or not. And all you had to have was completed one year of college in any field of study. It didn't matter what your grades were or not. If you went to college one year and you passed a background check, they would stamp you to be a substitute teacher in the Indianapolis school district. At least that's what they did at that time. And I thought, this is great. I had substitute teachers before in school. They didn't seem to do a whole lot to me. And so I thought, I'll get paid to do, like, not very much. Now, I've grown to have a great appreciation for education. I'm I'm married to a teacher, and and she's a fabulous teacher, and I am not so much. And it was no different uh, in my life at that period of time. I, I didn't have a calling to be a teacher. I didn't have training to be a teacher. I really didn't even have a heart to be a teacher, but I liked what I thought would be an easy paycheck to be a substitute teacher. So my very first assignment, when they called me to go be a substitute teacher, they sent me to my old high school. And I was to be in 12th grade history. (laughs) The the problem with this was all these people in the class I knew from a year ago, they were my classmates, and now I was supposed to be their teacher. Uh, Not only did I have no authority, credibility, training, education, or really any reason to be in that position, I had a classroom of guys who knew all those things about me and knew that I was not to be a good teacher. And so instead of going through the lesson plan that was prepared for me, I just said, hey, guys, we're just going to pop in a movie and do whatever you want. I was not a good substitute. So I called in and I told the dispatch center, don't ever send me to a high school again. That's not going to work for me. Give me elementary kids. I can handle that. I mean, they don't do much, right? So sure. So the very next morning, they called me and they said, uh, uh, Mr. Weishart, we'd like you to go to fourth grade science at such and such elementary school. And I thought, I'm not that great at science, but fourth grade, I mean, how, how hard can that be? I'll go. So I went to that class, uh, determined that it would be a better day than the day before, and, and I wrote my name on the board, Mr. Weishart, and I looked at the lesson plans, and I was determined, I'm going to teach through this material. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to make these kids listen. And, and you know what? They just need to respect my authority, and I was ready to just charge hell with a squirt gun in that fourth grade class and just make them listen. And so all the kids came in, and they found their seats. They're at these big, big tables, and, and they're like the science tables that had, you know, all the stuff on them. You've been in a science classroom. And, and these fourth graders are in there, and, and they're coming in, and one after another. And this first class that came in, I told them, don't raise your hand. Don't ask any questions till I go through the agenda for the day. And as soon as I started in on what we were going to do that day, a kid raises his hand. I thought, Great. This isn't going to go so well. And so I choose to ignore that child who's got his hand raised, definitely trying to get my attention. And as I continue to walk through the agenda, the kid to his left raises his hand. Now there's two kids side by side with their hand raised looking at me. And I just said, don't raise your hand. Kids aren't listening. But I'm going to get through my spiel. So I finally got through my spiel and I was done telling what was going to happen that day. And I looked at the kid who raised his hand first and I said, tell me, what's your question? And I'll never forget, this is like as true story as true stories can be. He looked at me and he said, Mr. Weishart, uh, Johnny can't get in his chair. The teacher always helps him. 
I said, what are you talking about? There was nobody to his right. And I walked over there, and I, I got to a different angle, and I saw, sure enough, there was a small child. And this child had been born with some challenges. His legs weren't as long as the other kid's legs. And, and due to a birth defect, his, his didn't really have functional arms like we would have, and he couldn't get in the seat. And I felt about this small. Here I made this kid stand there and wait. The teacher's supposed to come pick him up and put him in the seat. And I just was crushed. I was a bad substitute teacher. I felt it from the day before. I felt it that moment. And so in fear, I thought, I'm not going to teach this lesson. And I put it in a video, a schoolhouse rock. Anybody remember that stuff? Put that in, hit play, and said, here's what we're doing today in science. I don't know if you've had bad substitute teachers before or not. Maybe you've been a bad substitute. I was a bad substitute. And I bring that up because is bad as that is to have people educating kids who have no business in the education world like myself doing that. I think our culture substitutes things all the time and miss out on the authentic that's supposed to be there. And I want to share with you a message today from Acts chapter 9, and it's entitled, God Will Still Change, Radically Changed Lives. Radically Changed Lives. I think the the culture around us has, has accepted bad substitutes for the authentic. We accept it all around us. We do it in our food. We accept all kinds of things that are called food. It kind of looks like food. It tastes like food. But there's no nutrients in it whatsoever. God's been teaching Carrie and I about that this year. And and that was something he convicted me of. But it's not just with food that we accept bad substitutes. We accept bad substitutes in our society. We we ask that that the school will be the mother and father to our kids. And we wonder why we have problems in, in parenting. We've outsourced parents. We ask for there to be a substitute in who's to be the spiritual leader in the home. And we say, well, we'll just go to a church that will train up our kids. I don't have anything to do with that. And, and there's a bad substitute. In fact, it's been going on for generation after generation where people just like you and just like me have accepted a very bad substitute of religion for an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ. Take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at verse 1 through 31 of Acts chapter 9. And as we're going through this series, I want to remind you again that this is just a jump start to our study in Acts, the sermon, that is. And so I challenge you to take time this week to read through this passage of Scripture. Again, in your notes, there's a, there's a reading guide to help you digest or give you a, a suggested pattern of how to, to make this come alive in your life as you study it beyond today. But as we look at it briefly today, there's three things that I hope that we can see. I hope that we can see that we've accepted bad, poor substitutes for the authentic, radically life change that God brings. The first one we're going to look at is the provenient grace of God. We're going to find it in the text. We're going to find it in our own lives. Second, we're going to see the transforming power of God. We're going to find it in the text. We're going to see it in our own life. And then we're going to see that God calls us and he gives us a new name and a new heart. It's in the text. And I believe that God wants to do it in our life as well. We're going to be looking at this guy named Saul. He's who we know as Paul. Same guy. So today, undoubtedly, I'm going to use Saul and Paul interchangeably. It's the same person. This guy that we're going to be looking at, he's the one who has written 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Let's look at this verse together. As we read this chapter, it needs to be in light of this passage and passages like it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, Paul, 
am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. We're going to see in this first three verses here the prevenient grace of God. Now don't let that big word shy, make you shy away from it or scare you. Prevenient grace is simply the grace that God has for you before you ever cared about God. Basically, it's that God loves you. He runs after you. He seeks you out even when you could care less about him. Friend, if we accept a poor substitute for the prevenient grace of God, it short-circuits everything else in this radically changed life. We need to have an encounter with the prevenient grace of God. Look at verse 1 in your Bible. It says, but Saul. We'll just stop right there. We need to look at this. Who is this Saul? Who is this Paul that we know that's called Saul? Saul was a man, unlike most first century Jews, who was not born in Jerusalem. Saul was born in Tarshish. It was a city right above Israel and what would be present-day Turkey. He was born into a loving home of Jewish parents. His father was a Pharisee. And not only was his father a Jew and a Pharisee, but he also had the birthright. He was born in, in Rome, so he was a Roman citizen. And so we begin to see that, that Saul has some birthright stuff going on. He was born into some education. Paul would have got the best education as a young man in the first century. He would have known the Old Testament in and out, cover to cover or scroll to scroll. Much of what he had learned, he would have committed to memory. He would have been fluent in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. He was by his own admission passionate, filled with zeal. He surpassed his peers in knowledge and power. He quickly would rise through the ranks and the tradition of his elders, his Jewish faith, it was ingrained in him. He was a religious man. He was an educated man. He was a privileged man. He was a well-behaved man who was excelling in his life. That's who this Saul is. Look at the text again. Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, breathing out murderous threats. This Saul is the same guy that we met in Acts chapter 7 and chapter 8. You remember him? He was the one that when they were stoning Stephen, he was there standing by holding cloaks and coats, and he was an active participant watching and not stopping what was going on. He was in favor of those who are part of the way or those who called themselves by the name of Jesus, that they would be extinguished. They would be smothered out that they would be put to death what would it take for someone to stand by and watch some horrific violence like this surely it would take a group of men as in stephen's own words who were stiff-necked who were proud and who were resistant to the holy spirit that's a good resume stiff-necked proud and resistant to the holy spirit that's who saul was That's the group of people that he ran with. That's who we found in Scripture. And in Acts chapter 9, we see him again breathing out these murderous threats. Look at your Scriptures. It says, Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is to the way of Jesus Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul had already persecuted Christians, even persecuted them to death in Jerusalem, but that was not enough for him. He was so zealous, he was so passionate, he was so convinced that Christians were wrong, thoughts like this would come into his mind. How could any man who was hung on a tree 
obviously cursed by God, be the Messiah, be Jesus. I'm going to trample out and smother out this, this bogus Christianity once and for all. So he went to this high priest, most likely it was Caiaphas, who would oversee the Sanhedrin, the 71 men who provided leadership over the Jews, and he gave him paperwork. It was the bounty hunter's paperwork. You have authority to go get as many Christians as you can, put them in chains, bring them back, kill them if you need to, but let's get rid of this Jesus thing. Let's pick up at verse 3. What happens? Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now don't miss this. I want you to see this. Paul is on his way to Damascus. This Saul, who we know as Paul, a sinful, angry man, not only on his way to Damascus, he was on his way to hell, and God chose to rescue him. We begin to see here that God seeks out the sinner. His provenient grace is going to those who are living in rebellion to him, and he seeks out the sinner. Jot that down. God seeks out the sinner. Do you see God's provenient grace here in the text? God running towards Paul. Do you see him rescuing a man who is on his way to hell, but making him now a part of the way, a part of the body of believers? As God shines the light of the face of Jesus Christ on this man, he was humbled right where he stood. This event took place around noon, Acts chapter 22 tells us. And we also learn in Acts chapter 26 that the light that shone on him was brighter than the sun, S-U-N, because it was the very Son of God, S-O-N. Luke mentions Paul's conversion three times in the book of Acts, in chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. And that means this account is very important to Luke. It's important to his telling of the beginnings of the early church, and thus it should be important to us today. I recently heard a story of a father. It was a story of a father who had two daughters. He's not a part of this church. You wouldn't know him. I don't know him. I read of his story. This father had his 18-year-old daughter come up to him, and she said to him, Dad, I never, ever want to see you again. She wanted to live a life in her own rebellion. She was a sinful child who wanted to live in that sin so she got in her car with her boyfriend that she had for just a couple months in the very car that her dad had given to her less than a year ago and she drove off the father learned that she had went to miami florida where she lived a life of sin and rebellion and there would be times that she'd pick up the phone and the father would would think that it would probably be her he would get a call and it would be from an area code in that area and he would hear the whimpering of a cry it sounded like someone who was possibly drunk or maybe high but there'd be the deafening sound of the loud click of the receiver as she would hang up and never really speak to him his heart was broken and he just longed for her to come home he longed for her so much that he said i'm not going to wait for her to come home i want to go find her and so he made his way to miami and he would comb the streets of miami not having any clue of where she'd be looking for her seeking her out as I read the story of this father going to his wayward daughter, it reminds us of the prodigal son that we read of in Luke 15. Luke has been telling us about what God is like in his provenient grace. And as he gives us this account of Saul, it's not a parable, it's not some story. It is a real-life account of God seeking out the sinner. Do you see the grace of the Almighty God towards the sinful, rebellious, 
chief of sinners who calls himself the foremost to see his mercy towards this man and he rescues him and brings him into the family of God. Friend, I hope that you can see not just this in the text, but you can see that God seeks out you today. God's grace is running hard and fast after you. Jesus said, it's not those who are well that need a physician. It's those who are sick and they recognize that they are sick. He said, the Son of Man did not come for those who are well, but those who are sick. He came to seek and to save the lost. So let me ask you this question. Do you see God seeking you out even when you're not seeking Him out? Can you do an audit of your life and look back at your sinful choices or look back at the the times when you've taken things in your own hands? I can look in my own life and begin to see that God has loved me way beyond anything I could ever imagine. Friend, I challenge you today to repent, to accept this love that is running after you. This God is real. There is no substitute for the real provenient grace of God. He's the one who died for you. He bled for you. He paid the sin debt price for you. Would you put your trust in this one who has ran so fast to you? The second thing that jumps out to me at this text is in verse 4 through 19. And I'm not going to read all of it to you, but it's there. The transforming power of God. Not only do you see his provenient grace in the passage, but we begin to see his power. Look at verse 4. And falling to the ground, this sinful man is humble before God on his knees, maybe even on his face, as this light comes bursting in. Verse 4 and 5, he heard a voice saying to him, the personal God, this personal God of the universe saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who, who are you, sir? Who are you, mighty one? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, the one whom you have been persecuting. Have you learned that? lesson the lesson that when you sin you don't just commit a sin against the people around you or the sin that you commit against yourself alone when you sin when i sin we sin against god himself paul's persecution his sin was against god it was against jesus christ himself because christ so identified with his people that when you mess with his people you're messing with him it's a serious and dangerous thing To be in the hands of a God who is holy, who is just, who hates sin. The hands of a God who has all the right to pour out his wrath. That's where Saul was. And yet God gave him what he didn't deserve. Gave him grace. And the power of God began to transform him. When we see this transformational power of God, there's no substitute for this genuine conversion. I think in in religion and in church and in pop science, culture, Jesus stuff, we get these ideas of, well, I'm just going to get a little bit of shot in the arm of Jesus today, or I'm going to get a little bit of dose of Jesus, kind of like a little culture shot. But friend, until you've experienced the transforming power of God, a genuine conversion, there's no substitute for what he can do in your life. It's not knowing about him. It's not being close to him. It's not kind of doing the things that people who follow him do. It is an encounter with God and a genuine conversion. Look at verse 6 through 9. Paul is responding to God. Paul, rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do there. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he couldn't see anything. He was blinded by this light. So they led him by the hand to Damascus, and for three days, without sight, he didn't eat or drink anything. 
Paul was not only physically impaired where he couldn't see at the moment, God was highlighting for him that he was spiritually blind and had been for quite some time. And God was going to do whatever he had to do to shut his eyes to the things he was so used to seeing so his spiritual eyes could see who God truly was. The eyes that he had where he'd look at the Old Testament that he memorized, he knew from Genesis all the way to Malachi, he had missed it was all about Jesus Everything in the scriptures pointed to the Messiah, to the Christ, the suffering servant. And Paul missed it because he was spiritually blind. See, God's power and genuine conversion opens our eyes to see him for who he truly is. Have you witnessed God's genuine conversion in your life? I think sometimes we could accept a very poor substitute. I'm not asking you if you believe that Jesus exists. I'm asking you, have you allowed the Almighty God in His prevenient grace to come to you, to speak to you? Have you acted in obedience and allow Him to turn you from darkness to light? We also see in this text something that happens in verse 10 through 19. God calls us to play a part in transforming others. For the sake of time this morning, I'm not able to read all this, but we meet this guy named Ananias. He's one of the disciples there in Damascus. And God speaks to him in a a vision, in a dream, and he says, Hey, I want you to go to this particular house. I want you to ask for this guy from Tarshish named Saul, and I want you to, to give my good news of Jesus to him. And I can just hear Ananias hearing it now saying, God, what, um, what did you say his name again was? Saul? Saul. Saul from Tarshish. I think I know about this guy. Just hearing his name struck fear into him. Here, Ananias and the people of Damascus no doubt would know personally widows who were made a widow by this man named Saul. They would no doubt know orphans who were made an orphan because this man had killed their mom and their dad. You want me, God, to go? And so his clarifying questions, God says, this is where I want you to go. He goes. And look at your text. It says there that he says, Brother Saul, verse 17. I mean, here this guy who had been a recipient of the sin that Paul was breathing out murderous threats, he says, Brother Saul, this is a lot like the the love of Jesus coming out. Friends, when we see the prevenient grace of God, when we see the transforming power of God, it not only brings a conversion experience in us, it calls us to be a part of of the transformation that God is doing in someone else's life. Is there anything that God has asked you to do to be obedient to Him that's a little scary? I don't know what you're talking about, Brady. I just come to church. I sing a little bit. I listen to you a little bit. Then I leave. That is a very poor substitute for what God did in Paul's life. We know Paul, who is Saul. It's a very poor substitute for what God is still wanting to do. He wants to radically change your life. Not a little bit, a lot, a whole lot of bit. He wants to change every aspect of it. And he wants to get you involved in the transformation of other people. You don't transform them, but your obedience allows God to do the work. That's what took place. And you know what? That brings hope into our life. Not the hope that we produce ourselves, but the hope in the God who loves us, who seeks us out. I don't know where you need hope. Have you seen the power of God in your life? Do you need the hope that God brings through His power? 
whether it's a person that you're praying for that is dominated by sexual immorality, or maybe you're the person who's dominated by that sexual sin, God is still mighty to save and set you free. He saved a man by the name of Augustine in the 4th century. He opened his eyes to the glory of Christ. And he raised this man up to be one of the greatest Christian theologians in history of the church. And he freed him from his sinful, lustful, sexual, immoral ways. Maybe you're praying for a child who was raised in your Christian home, that you taught the gospel from birth, but now he or she is living like an atheist, shaking their fist at a God that they claim doesn't even exist. God, is he able to save an atheist today? He did that in the 1900s when he saved C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist And when C.S. Lewis writes of his conversion, he said, There was a joy that flooded my soul. There was a radical transformation in his life. Maybe it's the person that you're praying for who's seeking to earn God's favor by what they do. Or maybe you're that person who's seeking to earn God's favor by what you do. God saved a man like that. His name was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was reading the book of Romans and his eyes were opened. He became one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation. The very Bible that you hold in your hands, the very Bible that you downloaded to your device, that you're reading today. You would not have access to it as the layman in the body of Christ if it were not for Martin Luther and what God did in his life. He had a tremendous impact and here God set him free from the idea that he was going to earn his way to God. Maybe... It's the person you're praying for that has addictions all over their life. They are in bondage and chains and controlled by so many different things. Is God able to save them? I think of my friend Chad Johnson, who I met 12 years ago in Ohio. When he came to me, he was riddled with all kinds of addictions. Very real, very powerful. And as God not only encountered him, his provenient grace ran to him, transformed him, saved him. As Chad began to respond in obedience, he is now a pastor in Ohio. God has brought change in his life. And maybe that's not who you're praying for. Maybe that's you today. See, this hope of a radical change comes not just in what God does for us, not just what he wants to do in and through us. It's what God gives to you. He wants to give you a new identity, a new name, and a new hope. In our final moments, I want to ask you the question, are you still operating on the old identity of who you were before Jesus became more than a name in your life? Are you allowing Satan to to call out lies to you and, and refer to you as that no good, dirty, rotten whoever? And God says, let me give you a new name and let me give you a new heart. What do you mean, Brady? Where does that come from? As we look at this passage of Scripture, verse 20 through, through 31, take time to read it this week, but we see that Paul, he was a passionate man. You see that he was passionate, but in the wrong ways. God redeemed his passion. He took this man who was passionately wrong and redeveloped, transformed this man's worldview, his mind, his thinking, his actions, and gave him a passion for the Son of God. See, Paul's heart went from hating Jesus to loving Jesus. It wasn't because he worked at it. It wasn't because he was religious or educated. He was already religious. He was already educated. And he was dead wrong. 
And when he met Jesus, and Jesus blinded him, Jesus caused him not to be able to see anything else around him that he could normally see, because he wanted to open up his spiritual eyes to see who God was. And he saw that what he thought Jesus was, he was dead wrong about. Could it be today that you've been around Jesus and the things of God for like a long time? What if you have been getting it wrong all along? I'm not trying to get you to doubt the Bible. I'm not trying to get you to doubt your faith. I'm trying to say, have you had an encounter with God Almighty, who His prevenient grace is the foundation? He came to you. Some of us, we've accepted some substitute that I love God because I believe in Him and I do good things for Him. And God loves me because I've cleaned up so nice. You will never experience the power of God in your life the way He wants you to experience until you understand He knows everything about you. All of it. Everything. And He still loves you. You can't pull one over on him. God wants to radically change and transform your life. As Paul continues in those verses there, 20 through 31, we begin to see he immediately, Saul, who becomes Paul, immediately begins to preach the word of God, and he's persecuted for it, and his life is threatened. Isn't this interesting? See, he was the one who was trying to take lives away from people, and now he's trying to give life through Jesus Christ. There is this change that God does. Paul's heart went from taking lives to giving life in Jesus Christ. As, as we bring this to a conclusion this morning, I'm going to ask Pastor Edgar to come. And I'm not sure what God wants to do with the seed that's planted in your heart. It's, it's just a seed. In the brief amount of time we've had today, it's just a seed. But I'm asking that God would take that seed and let it germinate in your heart. And let it grow to a place where you have an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ. Tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to be talking more about how to respond to that kind of encounter with Jesus. But I think there may be some here this morning. Not because I ask you to. Not because you want to do anything for me. But... God is speaking to you today. Maybe he's calling out to you of his great love. He wants to give you what what he wants to bless you in grace, not what you deserve. Maybe you're here today and it's the question that, God, you've been so gracious to me, but are you really calling me to participate in someone else's radical transformation? Hey, we can accept some really bad substitute really poor substitute has no business being in our life as this placeholder for the things of god we can call it religion or just doing church or just like living a good life paul grew up doing that and it led him to totally miss jesus would you stand with me as we pray today Heavenly Father, I thank you for the words that you've given to us from Acts chapter 9. Lord, I declare again that your word is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. There's power in it, God. And so I pray that you'll take the things that, that I've shared and allow them to fall to the wayside. But let your word stand strong. Your word talks about itself. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but your word will stand forever. And so, God, I pray right now that as, as you 
interpret this word in my brother and sister's heart, you'll allow it to take root in a way that will mess them up in a good way for you for the rest of their life. So friend, I just simply asked you today, we're not going to hang out here long. If God's been speaking to you and he's put someone on your heart, you're praying for them, you're carrying a burden for them, and you honestly, you, you want to come to a place of prayer and say, God, I'm praying for a Damascus Road experience for my friend. And God, if you would so choose to have me be a part of ushering in your transforming power, I want to be obedient to you. If that's you and God's speaking to you about that, in just a minute, not yet, I'm going to invite you to come to this altar and we're just going to pray together. We're not going to hang out long, but we're just going to pray together. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, you talk about this God who loves me before I even come to Him. I think I've, I think I've tried to live in a substitute. I don't know this God who loves me that way. I invite you to come and let God minister, pour out His grace upon you today. And maybe you're here today and there is a Damascus Road experience for you. God is shining His light on an area of disobedience. He's shining His light on a thing that you have had a poor substitute for. And friend, you can sweep it under the rug, but it's just going to get worse. Why settle for something less than what God has? As Pastor Edgar leads us in this song, if you are feeling prompted to come pray today, I'm going to ask you to do that right now. Don't wait for anybody else. Just step out of where you're at. Come and kneel here at this altar. We're not going to hang out long. We're going to pray together. And before long, we'll be dismissed and going about the responsibilities we have today. But I believe that there's some people here today that the Word of God has been planted in their heart and they're ready to respond right now. If that's you, don't wait for someone else. You just step out and you come and kneel at this altar. We're going to pray together. You may be praying for yourself. You may be praying for someone else. But, but God has said, this Word is for you. My provenient grace is real. The transformational power I extend is real. I have a new name. I have a new heart that I want to give. Don't accept a very poor substitute. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the grace, the hope, the transformation, the freedom that you're going to bring to these, my friends, and to the people that's on their heart. Lord, I thank you that before I see it, I can take courage and confidence in the fact that you are at work right now. I thank you, Lord, that you're 
Your word is not this book of exceptions of what you did once that you never, ever, ever do again. But Lord, I thank you for the the book of examples you've given to us that this is what you did and this is what you are still doing and this is what you're going to be doing tomorrow. And so God, I pray that you will encourage the hearts of my brothers and sisters today. Your word says that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes from the word. And so God, I ask that as they have been chewing on your word today, God, that it will increase their faith. Not in this church, not in me, not in themselves, not anyone else, but God, that they may have faith in you. So thank you, Father, for the victory that we have in you today. We don't deserve it. We don't understand it. We confess we don't always even like what it is you're calling us to do. But we're saying yes to you, God. And we are humbled. We are brought to our knees, to our face, and gratitude for what you're doing in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Church, I want to thank you for your attention today. As you take off, I challenge you, don't let Acts chapter 9 just kind of slip away. Take some time today, take some time this week to read through it and allow God to breathe on that passage for you. As these, our friends, are praying, we're going to encourage them to stay as long as they would like. I want you to talk with your friend and hug on their neck and laugh and have joy, but if you'll just do that in the foyer today, that'll be good for all of us. God bless you.